You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the author of 19 international bestsellers that have been translated into over 35 languages and have changed the way people think about marketing and work. He is the author of one of the most popular blogs in the world with over 9,000 posts and over a million readers. By focusing on everything from effective marketing and leadership to the spread of ideas and changing everything, he has been able to motivate and inspire countless people around the world. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Seth Godin. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Firstly, for our listeners that aren't familiar, I'd like to ask you to start off by, um, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your work. Well, that was a pretty generous intro. Um, I think of myself as a teacher. I started one of the first internet companies. I was in the software business in the 80s. I completely missed uh, the World Wide Web, but caught up as fast as I could. Uh, I was a VP at Yahoo for a while, and um, now I'm a freelancer. It's just me. And uh, my new project is called the Carbon Almanac, which is a all-volunteer effort created by more than 300 people in uh, 40 countries around the world. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's actually the first thing I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, so that's a hugely consequential project um, you've been involved in lately. It's called the Carbon Almanac, um, which is set to be published in about um, three weeks from when we're recording this. Um, so tell us a bit about the project, how you got involved, and, and why it's so important. Well, I guess I would start by asking your listeners who are curious people who care, don't you want to know? Wouldn't you like to know as opposed to be indoctrinated or brainwashed or manipulated by marketers and fossil fuel companies and politicians? It would be really nice to know what is actually happening to our planet because it's the only one in the universe that is capable of sustaining our life. And what I found uh, I wrote my first blog post about climate change 16 years ago. Obviously, one blog post was not enough to solve the problem. What I found is a lot of people don't want to speak up because they feel like hypocrites or they feel underinformed. And so the Almanac is a work of a browsable work of facts. Every single page has a footnote on it that leads to every single one of our sources. And the goal of it was to show you and help you see what is actually happening so you can make up your own mind. But first we got to talk about it because if we're not able to take systemic action, we cannot solve this systemic problem. Okay. And was there anything that you found surprising um, in this whole process, something that you didn't expect perhaps in the book um, that you guys managed to uncover? You know, my life was changed by it. And I think if you talk to the people on the project, their lives were changed by it first in the way we work together. But second, uh, just a couple unbelievable facts. The first one is that plastic recycling is a fraud, that uh, less than 6% of all the plastic is recycled. That when you're spending all your time putting plastic in the bin, it's just so that they can incinerate it a little bit more efficiently. Um, and the second thing is that the phrase carbon footprint was invented by an ad agency working for British Petroleum. And that the reason that they push people, particularly privileged people who have resources, to worry about their carbon footprint is not 
because your personal activity is going to make or break the planet. But because if you feel like you're not perfect, if you feel like a hypocrite, you won't speak up. And we're hoping to help people see that if we speak up, we can make something happen before it's too late. Yeah, I, th- I think that that sort of cognitive dissonance that you're talking about is a big part of it, um, because if you if you um, pay attention to sort of the, the mainstream media or perhaps your um, political sources or that sort of thing, um, you'll you'll um, depending on what side you're on, you'll you'll either hear a lot of um, you know almost like doomsday type rhetoric, and, and then you'll think, well, if I'm not recycling or you know I'm driving a, a gas car, I can I maybe can't afford to buy an electric car that sort of drives you out of the movement, right? Because humans find it very difficult to deal with that cognitive dissonance where their actions and their beliefs don't, don't match. Um, and, and so I think that, that having sort of that um, repository of facts to come back to and see exactly what's going on um, without, you know, being pushed um, into some sort of rhetoric with, um, especially when there's someone with an agenda behind that is really important. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I'm not sure there are two sides, just like there aren't two sides about gravity. Gravity is gravity. The weather is the weather. And um, there are people who want to take different actions based on what is happening. But what is happening is happening. And the way that I think about our opportunity is this. I live, I'm talking to you now, uh, 13 miles from New York City on the Hudson River. Uh, For hundreds of years after um, it started to be colonized, people basically peed in the river. If you needed to get rid of your sewage, you dumped it in the river. It's a big river. And it was only about 150 years ago that they realized that was killing people as well as the oysters. They didn't say at that point, hey, everybody, if it's convenient, please stop peeing in the river. What they did was two things. One, they made it illegal to pee in the river. And two, they built a sewer system. And that's exactly the situation we're in now. Asking people nicely to stop driving a gas-powered pickup truck doesn't pay off because everyone's not going to stop. What we have to do instead is make principled decisions about the boundaries of our culture, the same way we made speed limits in school districts at the school zone. Nobody complains about having to drive 15 miles in a school zone because you don't want to run over a kid. Well, we need to have rules. And we need to have structures and we need to have better systems. Hi, this is Jay Schiffman, the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. If you're hearing this, it means you listen to a pretty amazing podcast hosted by someone that I truly admire. But if you want to help end stigma and promote honest and fact-based education around mental health, substance misuse and recovery, and drug use and policy, head on over to the Choose Your Struggle podcast and give it a listen. I interview amazing guests with lived and learned experience to help change the way the world sees people like me. Yeah, because I have lived experience myself. I'm in recovery and I know how hard it can be. So head on over to the Choose Your Struggle podcast wherever you get your podcast. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I wanted to perhaps switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your other work. Um, so every day for the past 20 something years, um, you've written a blog post for what's come to be one of the most popular blogs in the world. Um, you've also been quite vocal um, in encouraging everyone to take up blogging as a daily activity. So can you tell us a bit um, about your approach to blogging um, that's led you to be so successful in this space and why you think it's something that everyone can benefit from? Well, if I'm successful, it's because I've been at it for a long time and I got lucky. Um, Someone had to be the number one blogger in the category and it was me. But I also think that you should have a blog even if no one reads it. 
And the reason is because if you know that tomorrow you're going to write something that might be read by somebody, that might be read by them years from now, you're going to think differently because you know you have to write something. And once you start collecting this body of work, you will realize that you become more thoughtful and more consistent simply because you're doing it in public. And um, you know, in terms of how my blog got big, I started with 100 readers. Every blog starts with 100 readers. The difference is that I wrote my blog so that people would share it, that I wasn't always writing for the reader. I was writing for the reader's friends so that the reader would know that if they forwarded it to people, their life would get better. Okay. Um, so for the average person out there who's working perhaps a nine to five um, and coming back home um, to their families and their children, they only have at most a couple hours left in the day and probably not a whole lot of deep interests that they could churn out day after day um, worth of content on. Um, so for our average listener, what's sort of the starting point uh, to get started with writing a blog? Like, what do you think, what, what do you start with on a blank word document, assuming you don't already have deep pre-existing passions that you have a lot of information or opinions about? Okay, so thank you for setting me up for this. First of all, I don't know anybody who has a nine to five job. I don't know if you do, um, because people work way more than that. But secondly, most of the people I know spend about seven hours a day either watching television or doing social media. So if you just took 10 of those minutes away from your social media and television habit, you would have plenty of time to blog every day. That's the first thing. The second thing is you should begin by writing the worst stuff you can think of. Really sloppy, poorly constructed, poorly thought out. Write it under another name. I don't care. Just begin. Toddlers, I don't know if you spend any time with two or three-year-olds, but toddlers toddle. And the way they toddle is they walk a couple steps and they fall down, but they don't give up walking. They just try it again. So the reason that people think they have writer's block is because they want perfect writing. And if you are willing to write poorly, your writing's just going to get better whether you want it to or not. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I'm um, just, just trying to uh, go a bit further down down sort of this road because um, I'm sure a lot of people are interested, especially given that the advice here is so practical, unlike a, a lot of um, other advice out there. Um, if if they're sitting there tonight um, with with a word document open, what what do they start um, talking about? Is it just your opinions, what you ate for dinner? Um, where where do you, where do you sort of start with? What's um, do, do you start talking about? You know, current affairs. What is it that you think um, you start? pumping out content content on? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to write about what you are the world's expert on. And what that is, is you. Um, what do you see when you look out the window and why does it resonate with you? Who is the person you most wish you could have a second chance with? What is the smartest thing you said today? What is there in the world that puzzles you? Uh, what is it that you wish you understood better? Um, who is the best teacher you ever had and why? There's no shortage of prompts. Prompts are easy, really, really easy. If you're looking for reassurance and a guarantee, I have neither one of them. Okay. Um, so let's say you can you can start to get a steady stream of content going and manage to put out a blog every day. 
Um, something that I've always sort of struggled with in this realm, um, which I wanted to get your take on, is the ridiculous oversaturation of content on the internet. So if you're somebody who spent every day writing a blog post for the past year, um, and you still have almost nobody clicking on your website, it's it's quite easy to, to start to feel disillusioned with the whole concept. There's a million blogs out there. Um, and like with everything else, a small percentage of them get almost all of the views. So yourself having written over 9,000 blog posts and having been in this industry um, since well before the internet or even blogging as a concept was widespread, um, how do you get past the fact that all this effort you're putting in um, might just be getting lost in the constant onslaught of infinite content on, on the internet? Well, I guess I would ask you, how many people do you think you need to have reading a blog or listening to a podcast before you decide it's worth it? Well, I think um, for me, and this is, again, coming from personal experience, um, I, I think the, the difference is that um, when you're personally vested in it, um, in the sense that you have an interest in doing it, you know, you have an interest in writing the blog, you get enjoyment from the activity alone, um, mm -hmm. then the other side of it um, tends to sort of, um, you know, disappear altogether. It's like, well, I don't care if there's, you know, there, I, I could be writing this on a, a, on a blank Word document and not even publishing it. Um, but just the fact that, um, you know, I, I, I'm doing this for me. Um, and so that's, what's important, but for someone who's writing a blog post, um, you know, potentially to get their start as an author, potentially to get their start in, in the industry, or, you know, maybe even as a side hustle, because for, for a lot of people, um, you know, that they're looking to make an extra income, they only have a set number of hours and they can either use that to, to, you know, maybe start a drop shipping site or blog. So for those people, um, who do have some other, um, potentially bigger goals that they'd like to achieve, um, that, that sort of disillusionment, I think it might, might be a sort of a bigger issue. Okay, well, that's a totally different question than what you and I were just talking about. Um, if you wanna ask the question, how can someone use the new tools of connection and media to make a living while not giving up their, their day job, you shouldn't build a blog and you shouldn't make the blog personal, no way. That's ridiculous. The sum total of income I have made from my blog in 20 years is a dollar. You're not going to get paid to write a blog. That's not where this needs to go. You're also not going to get paid to make a podcast. And um, if somebody thinks that making a podcast is a good way to make a living, they should check the numbers. So I'm going to answer the question differently, which is what is scarce? is a combination of two things. Very specific information about very specific industries and communities of people who need to be connected. If you do those two things, you can make a living. So for example, there are probably a thousand people in the world who really, really care about multi-million dollar plastic injection molding machines. They either make them or they buy them. If you organized that community, if you gave that community a chance to compare specs, to, to learn the news, to uh, find jobs, to understand from each other what's going on, it wouldn't be hard for me at all to imagine each of those thousand people paying you $1,000 a year to be part of that community because the community doesn't exist. It's worth way more than $1,000 to be in it. Go build that. You don't have to know anything about the industry when you start. You just have to care about connecting people and informing people who are eager for both of those things. That's different than Seth writing a blog about marketing.
Okay, um, I think that's that's really great um, practical advice. Um, find your niche, drill down on it, um, and, and try and mobilize that community first um, before you start targeting, um, you know, bigger and bigger. Because I think that's that's a trap a lot of people fall into. They think, well, there's only so many people in this niche. Um, let's go bigger. Let's go wider. Let's go broader and try and target a, a bigger and bigger and bigger audience. And the bigger the community, the bigger the number of people in that niche, um, you know, the more potential there is, the more readers there are. Um, so let's go there. Um, and like you said, that's not necessarily always the right approach. Yeah, it's never the right approach. Someone has to win the lottery, but it's not going to be you. Okay. Um, so uh, also uh, another thing um, that you've talked about, um, in the past, you've been quite critical of conventional education, um, writing once for your blog, um, quote, Education is a model based on scarcity, compliance, and accreditation. Um, it trades time, attention, and money for a piece of paper that promises value. But we learn in ways that have little to do with how mass education is structured. If you know how to walk, write, write, read, type, have a conversation, perform surgery, or cook an egg, it's probably because you practiced and explored and experienced, not because it was on a test. So if it were up to you, what would you change about the way our schools are structured or our school system is structured? Um, or do you think it's up to the parents to instill um, in their children the learning that school perhaps misses? Well, all of the above. Uh, the truth of the matter is if you do the math, every single kid is homeschooled sooner or later because they're spending most of their time, all of their time for five years and the time after that, uh, many hours a day at home. But because of economic pressures, many parents can't spend as much time as they would like taking care of their kids' education. And so the cultural benefit of putting kids together in school is important. But yes, parents are on the hook, but so are kids. And my TED talk, TEDx talk, Stop Stealing Dreams, and the book that goes with it, I go into this in a fair amount of detail. My argument is that we learn based on what we do. And so we should change what we do because then kids will discover what is possible. So um, just just um, putting putting myself in, in sort of the shoes of sort of our, our younger or, or youth listeners, perhaps those that are in school um, that have always been, um, you know, Put, put through the conventional education system in the way that we all were, where, you know, you memorize the content, you regurgitate it on the test, you move on, you get the piece of paper. Um, if you're one of those kids who's potentially, you know, 15, 16, 17, um, what, what advice do you have for them if they're, if they want to learn how to make an impact, if they want to learn how to, um, you know, get their name out there, do something that's bigger, um, you know, help their community, that sort of thing. Um, what, what advice do you have for, for someone who didn't grow up in an environment or, or in a community where they were taught anything else except um, read your textbook, do well on your test? Well, part of the thing is seeing it. And so if you're, if you're talking about somebody who is seeing it, I would first say congratulations because seeing it is 80% of the problem. If you are indoctrinated into thinking that you have to go to the placement office and get picked and do a job and then get do everything your boss says, you've been indoctrinated by an industrial system that pretends to care about the free market that really just wants you to comply. And the thing is, being on the hook has costs and it has benefits, but the only way to do it is to be on the hook. Go try something and try it for an hour a week or an hour a day. Don't quit your day job, but go begin. Begin by building something of value. And that thing doesn't have to be a commercial transaction, but it has to be a value. You know, if 
you talked about that blogger who's been working for a year and doesn't have any more readers. Well, it may be because the blogging they're doing isn't of value to people who are reading it enough for them to tell the others. And it all fits back together into this idea that culture is what we make it. And when we work together, we create more value than when we work alone, but we don't have enough leaders and we don't have enough organizers. And there are too many people who are just saying, I want to keep every dollar I make, leave me alone. It doesn't work that way anymore because the world is too small. So we are all living on each other's front lawn. We are all breathing the same air. We are all connecting around the same ideas. You don't get to you know, move to a, a canyon in Colorado. You've got to say, I'm going to show up and do this work. Is it a value? How can I make it better? How can I do work that matters for people who care? Okay. Um, and, and yeah, I think that that makes sense um, for, for, you know, perhaps some of our, our youth listeners were thinking, well, um, you know, this is, this is all I know. There are certainly cultures or, or um, within America where education is so prized and especially conventional education um, that, that sort of that mold is very hard to break out from where you think the only way to be successful, the only way to have an impact is to go to school um, for 12 years and then, you know, potentially go to college um, and then grad school. And, and that's the only way um, to, to sort of make an impact or, or to be of any value to your society. And I think there, um, as time goes on, our, our perceptions around that are, are sort of shifting and I think for the better. Um, but what, what would you say then um, to perhaps some of the parents that might be listening, um, if they potentially have young kids, um, you know, maybe um, infants or toddlers, or even, you know, school age children or older, um, is there something you would recommend to parents out there um, that they can do with their children, perhaps activities that they can do or, or something they can do with their kids um, after they get home from school um, to, to give them sort of that, that foundation in, um, you know, learning or, or making an impact, that sort of thing. So I want to talk about Lego for a minute as we begin to wrap this up. The Lego company was almost out of business. And in a breakthrough, they figured out that instead of making Lego that followed their rules, which is that every piece of Lego can do multiple things, they should start making Lego kits. And Lego kits saved the company. And the horror of Lego kits is that you're supposed to do them one way. It's just pre-industrial training. Here is a kit, here are the instructions, make it so it looks just like the thing on the cover. And what I am begging parents to do is throw out the packaging and say to your kid, hey, you want to build a pneumatic potato gun that can hurl a potato across the Hudson River at 40 miles an hour? Let's figure out how to do it. And let's figure it out. And I'd like to listen to you more than I'd like to lecture to you. These are foundational principles of leadership. Leadership isn't about management and authority. Leadership is about willingly being wrong with generosity on your way to figuring out how to do it right. Okay, um, perfect. So lastly, I wanted to talk to you a bit about a wildly successful online course that you pioneered titled Old MBA, um, which is a month-long leadership workshop that has over 5,000 alumni um, from all across the world and all different backgrounds. So what is it that Alt-MBA seeks to achieve? Tell us a bit about that. And what makes it different from the thousands of other online courses um, out there that, that haven't done nearly as well? Um, so I'll preface this by saying I don't run it anymore. I'm super proud of it, but it's now a B Corp out of my control. I don't get any upside from it. So you know that I have no uh, mixed incentives here. It is not an online course. It is an online workshop. And that is why it works. 
It works because cohorts of people, 20 strong, come together to do projects. They ship work every two days. They get feedback on that work. They adjust that work and then they ship it again. And for many of the people in the Alt-MBA, they gave and received more feedback in 30 days than they did in three years at their job. They understood what it was to learn something new, to put on a new set of glasses and to lean into possibility. And it is the opposite of what they teach at the Harvard MBA online. I have an MBA from Stanford. The only benefit of the MBA from Stanford was being in the room with people on a similar journey, not what they taught you in the classes. And so I thought, what would happen if we used the benefit of online, got rid of the classes? Because I mean, there's some videos in there, but there's not a lot. There's no secrets. There's nothing in there that you couldn't learn by looking it up somewhere, but you wouldn't learn it by looking it up somewhere because we learn things by doing them. And so more people have graduated from the Alt-MBA in the last few years than from Stanford. And I'm super proud of the people who've been through it now in 70 plus countries um, because they see the world differently. And seeing the world differently, I think is part of what you're trying to do. And I am proud that that's what I've been doing for a long time. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions um, I, I have for you, Seth. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. It's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I hope you keep leading. Okay. Be sure to check out the Carbon Almanac um, available on Amazon from June 30th. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.